You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, it's good to be back with you um, after I, I spent most of January uh, outside of Ontario, so it's nice to be back with my church family. Um, if you're not there already, um, grab, your, uh, grab your Bibles, turn to Mark 7, um, which we just heard read by Charisse. Um, and our passage this morning starts with a theme that we've probably all become really uh, familiar with over the past couple of years, uh, hand-washing. You know, even, uh, even before COVID, hopefully hand-washing was an instinctive part of your life. Um, I know that, you know, there are a few key times when washing hands just seems like the right thing to do. Um, and as if, you know, if your parents in the room, I'm sure you've all diligently tried to teach your children like, what are those, those right times, you know, when you just, need, you just need to wash up? And I'm sure we've all seen it play out when a, a child is halfway back to the dinner table after using the toilet, and they get asked, hey, did you wash your hands? And there's a 180 back to the washroom because they know they're not sitting down at the table again until the answer is yes. And, uh, and yet, we, you know, so this has become part of, part of our lives. It's been part of our lives for a while. And yet, over the past couple of years, it seems like it's just ramped up tenfold, right? Um, especially at the at the beginning of COVID, right? All of a sudden, Murphy's Distillery in town was adding hand sanitizer to their product line instead of just moonshine. Um, and we started to see these public health commercials on TV videos on our Facebook feed that we had never really been accustomed to seeing like right in our faces, just reminding us what proper hand washing looks like. Now, personally, at the beginning especially, I found it kind of interesting because um, I've been involved over the past few years on you know a number of um, trips related to international relief and development. Um, and in that context, um, you know, getting clean water is super important, but it's also recognized that sanitation and hygiene um, and hand washing in particular is really important as well, um, because this is one of the primary ways that we can avoid communicable disease, right? Like it's a, it's a really effective method of protecting against it. Um, so often in those contexts, like public health education and these sorts of like TV ads and posters and all these things that we've started to see more of here, um, those are actually, you know, quite common in those, in those contexts. Um, but again, in a Western context, we feel like it was a little bit odd all of a sudden, you know, like we're used to the posters in the public restrooms, but in between periods of a hockey game, like on the TV, it just seemed weird, right? Um, well, this issue of washing one hands, one's hands is, is really right front and center at the beginning of this passage in um, Mark 7. But this hand washing wasn't about hygiene, and it wasn't about, um, you know, protecting against a virus. This was about uh, a symbolic expression of piety. It was a demonstration of religious purity. And this passage that we're coming to this morning is just another example of where the religious elite of the day are clashing um, with Jesus and his disciples over some particular law or tradition. Um, we, we had a few passages like this uh, last October when we looked at Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, and again, this is the same sort of thing in Mark chapter 7 where, where Jesus is showing the Pharisees that, again, they've missed the point. Um, the, the issue they, the Pharisees think in this passage is the disciples' dirty hands. But Jesus pushes back against the Pharisees and says, no, the problem is actually your heart. And before we dive into this passage, I just want to make a brief disclaimer. Um, 
we've said this with so many passages in Mark. He doesn't offer a lot of commentary or interpretation. And so sometimes the way that we need to uh, figure out what he's getting at and um, you know, really what the Lord is trying to teach us through these passages is we have to put ourselves into the story. We have to ask, like, where do I fit in? Am I like this person or that person? You know, how would I react in that situation? And this passage here is no exception. But fair warning, like when we do that with this passage in particular, it's got some hard words for us. It speaks um, to some somewhat unpopular truths about the human condition. And as we go through it this morning, please just don't bail out on me. Come with me. There's good news coming. Um, but the goodness of the good news is only understood fully when we understand the bad, badness of the bad news. All right, so stick with me. We'll get through it together. Um, but I'm going to start by praying some words from Psalm 139, and then we'll get into the passage. Let's pray. Lord, where can we go from your spirit? Where can we flee from your presence? If we go to the heavens, you are there. If we make our bed in the depths, you are there. If we rise on the wings of the dawn, if we settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide us. Your right hand will hold us fast. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us, know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. All right, let's dive into uh, Mark chapter seven together. So again, if you're not there, grab your Bibles, flip there. This, this passage, again, starts with this, this conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. And again, back in October, we looked at some other short stories that were kind of similar in theme and structure. In those passages, Jesus' critics were asking, why don't your disciples fast? Um, why are they picking heads of grain on the Sabbath? And then there was this whole question of whether or not it was okay for Jesus to heal someone on the Sabbath. And the structure of those stories is actually pretty similar to the structure of this first story we read in Mark chapter 7. First, Mark kind of sets up the backdrop of the story, and then there's a question or a challenge of Jesus from the Pharisees, and then Jesus gives his response. So in the first couple of verses, uh, we have this setup, and it reads like this. Now, the now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And so as we jump into this, this is kind of a bit, like it's a, it's a bit of a one-off story. We don't know exactly when or where this is happening. Um, it's as if Mark is just saying, hey, this one time, the Pharisees noticed that the disciples did not wash their hands before they ate, and they challenged that. And if Mark had stopped right there in the setup after verse two, then, well, we might, we might have thought that they were actually just, just calling out the disciples for having dirty hands, um, for having an apparent lack of personal hygiene. Um, but Mark goes on and gives us a little bit of an explanatory note in the next couple verses, right? And he just, he just explains uh, kind of the context around this tradition of, of washing hands. And then it's obvious that it's not a matter of personal hygiene here. Mark probably gives this explanation because his audience was not Jewish. His audience was probably Roman, Gentiles. And so he needed to kind of give this context for, for what was going on. So he explains at this time, the Pharisees in particular, and also the Jews at large, they had this ritual practice of washing their hands 
well, not only their hands, but also dishes and vessels and even their, their seats that they were going to dine on. There was just this, this ritual practice. It was sim symbolic, um, but they did it even before they ate their meals. Now, if we're familiar at all with the Old Testament laws and some of the language that we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, like this, this thing, this doesn't really seem that surprising to us, right? Like there's a ton of language in the Old Testament that talks about this idea of cleanliness. Like if you touch certain things or ate certain things under the Jewish law, then you were unclean and you weren't supposed to take part in certain aspects of worship. Now again, its primary function was symbolic. Its, its primary function wasn't like a, a physical or hygienic issue. Um, it was this ritual cleanliness. It was meant to be a symbol of our impurity as humans before a pure and holy God. So when we see the Pharisees questioning Jesus here in the beginning of Mark chapter seven, it would be reasonable to assume that, ah, they're probably just challenging some obscure Levitical law that I don't know about, you know, but they're, they're coming up and they're making this challenge. But there's a particular phrase that appears a couple times in these first five verses that we, we should pay attention to here. And it, it's in verse five, right at the bottom. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And that same phrase, tradition of the elders, it shows up in verse three. And it's actually important in understanding a nuance of this passage and, and why Jesus' rebuke that we're about to read in verse six is so strong, like right out of the gate. You see, for the Pharisees in the first century, there was actually two streams of authoritative law. There was the written law, which we're kind of familiar with, right? The Torah. It's the first five books of our, of our Old Testament, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This was the written law. But then there was this ever-evolving oral law, or the tradition of the elders, that Mark calls it here. And for the Pharisees, this was seen as equally authoritative as the written Torah. This oral tradition was a huge mass of tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation. It was developed by the rabbis and passed on to the next generation. And it was considered by the Pharisees to be, again, equally as authoritative and binding as the Old Testament written law. And this challenge that the Pharisees are making to Jesus and the disciples is based on that oral tradition. It's not actually based in Old Testament law. Levitical laws around the washing of hands were, um, or, and washing at all really were primarily for priests uh, before they entered the temple or ate the priestly food. There was no law around regular Jews having to do a ceremonial cleansing before they ate their daily meals. But the Pharisees, in all of their zeal to follow God, had extended these priestly obligations to Jews at large in this oral tradition. And they made adherence to that oral tradition equally as important as obedience to the Torah itself. And so they come to Jesus and they ask, why do your disciples not walk according to that tradition, to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus' response, like, he does not pull any punches. He just cuts right to the chase. And this is what he says to them. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus calls them right out of the gate hypocrites. 
And this is a term we understand, we still use it today, right? Nobody thinks that using this word is a compliment, right? Like there's even a kid's song, right? I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be a hypocrite because they're not hip with it. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Well, I was reminded over the past couple of weeks where this word hypocrite actually comes from. You might have known this. I didn't. Um, but it actually comes from the Greek word meaning actor or stage player. You see, in ancient Greek theater, performers would wear like these large masks to indicate uh, what character they were playing. And that role of an actor was called a hypocrite, right? It's, it's not hard to see then as an actor or a pretender, right? how that word then got translated into our modern usage, or how Jesus uses it here, to extend, to just refer negatively to anyone who's pretending to be something or someone that they're not. Because in the context of a, of a play, it's totally fine to, to act and pretend, right? But outside of that, not so much. Growing up, my dad used to direct these Easter musicals at, uh, at our church. And for a while, it was, it was quite this tradition, right? It was like every other year that we did it. Um, the last one that he directed was about 10 years ago. And it had been a while since he had done one. Um, and I was finally old enough uh, that I could, you know, I could be in it. Um, previously, I had been pretty young. And so this time, I decided, you know, I want to participate. And so in the production, I ended up playing a, uh, the role of a, of a Roman centurion who fell in love with a Jewish girl. Now, obviously, that was an imagined subplot to the much more important uh, passion narrative. Um, but yeah, th here we were, I was playing this role, and, and I was falling in love with this Jewish girl who was played by a, a young woman at the church. Now, of course, we were acting. We were pretending. We weren't actually falling in love with each other. Everybody knew that. This was a play, a production for entertainment value. Nobody thought it was reality. The boundaries were very, very clear. I mean, her husband was sitting in the front row, right? I knew exactly where I stood. But how damaging and inappropriate would it have been for me to pretend and behave that way outside of the context of the play? To pretend that I loved someone who I really didn't. To pretend to be someone that I wasn't. To say one thing and do another. Take the term hypocrite out of the context of an ancient Greek play, and it's not a compliment at all. But this is what Jesus goes for with the Pharisees. He accuses them of being phonies, pretenders, actors with mixed-up priorities. And he quotes this, this passage from Isaiah, saying, man, you guys remind me of what Isaiah said. You say you love God, but you don't really. Your heart is so far away from his. You're just pretending. You love your oral traditions, these things that you've made up. You love them more than you love the word of God itself. You love them more than you love him. And then in verse 9, he gives kind of this sort of sarcastic, backhanded compliment. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Like, you guys are really creative. Really creative at, at how to get your priorities mixed up. And then in verses 10 to 13, he cites this particular example where according to their tradition, someone would be exempt of providing financial support to their parents by saying that their property, their resources were an offering to God. Corbin is the technical term that we, that we read here. And apparently this got abused to avoid the obligation 
that's written in Old Testament law of supporting one's own family. Sorry, mom and dad, I would help, but, uh, but I pledged that money to the building project at church. And you could get away feeling great, like I'm giving this money to God. And you might even, you don't, your community is looking at you great, like, man, that generosity. But you're completely missing what God actually asked you to do. And this wasn't a one-off thing, Jesus said. This tendency to miss the heart of God in favor of keeping their tradition, it pervaded their practice. And many such things you do, Jesus said in verse 13. And at this point, I mean, we're seven chapters deep into the, into the gospel of Mark, and uh, you've probably read some of the other gospels, uh, and you're not surprised at all to see um, Jesus lodging this kind of criticism against the religious leaders of the day. Like, and maybe you're, we're thinking when we read this, at first we're thinking, yeah, you go, Jesus. Because, I mean, we love to see hypocrites called out. Nobody likes hypocrisy in any context except for an ancient Greek play. Right? We're quick to point it out in others, in our political leaders, in those who don't share our beliefs, and maybe even in those who do share some of our beliefs, but we feel like they've missed the mark on something. But have we stopped to consider where were the hypocrites? Because the thing that gets me about this, and really any time I read about the Pharisees, is like, it wasn't because of their lack of zeal that they missed, missed the mark. One commentator writes it like this. In the judgment of Jesus and Mark, the Pharisees were gravely mistaken in the course they pursued. But they were not, as far as we can tell, either superficial or uncommitted. Yes, Jesus' critique should give us courage to stand up against hypocrisy and fight it when we see it. But for those of us who call the Christian church home, Mark 7 should give us pause and it should give us a little bit of humility. And we should be on the hunt for hypocrisy first within our own house and within our own hearts. Where am I honoring Jesus with my lips and yet my heart is miles away from his? Where do I defend our traditions as if they were his commands? Where do I equate my political preferences with his kingdom values? Where do I, like an actor, put on a show of righteousness before others because I'm just trying to hide what's underneath the mask? Sometimes our hypocrisy is just kind of apathy, right? Like we don't really know why we do this church thing. We just come week after week because it's what we do. We go through the motions, but, you know, the rest of the week, whatever. We, we wash our hands because that's what we do before a meal, right? We don't really know why. Sometimes our hypocrisy is, is self-righteousness. Look at all the things I'm doing. Hey, you tromp up to the table. Look at my clean hands. Look at how clean I got them. Sometimes, in a way, our hypocrisy manifests as a desperate to attempt to clean up our own lives on ourselves. We know our hands are filthy, and we try everything we can do to get them clean, but it, it just feels like they never quite get there. They look fine to everybody else, but we still feel gross. We give, we pray, we sing, we check in on people, we make meals, we serve on this committee and that board, but something still feels off because we know our hearts. All the while, Jesus is saying to all of us, right now, I don't, I don't care about your hands. That'll come. First, I want your heart. 
You know, the Pharisees and Jesus, they disagreed on a lot. I think we all kind of know that. Um, But there is one thing they agreed on for sure, that we are all unclean before God. In our natural state, we are unfit for his presence. And in that sense, the Pharisees did get the human condition at least partially right. But there was a major problem with their understanding of where that uncleanliness comes from and how we can fix it. The Pharisees had an outside-in view of uncleanliness. Like, the defect is out there, right? Sin is external. And if the problem is external, then so is going to be the solution. They thought, you know, we can protect ourselves against sin and defilement like we protect against a virus. Because it's out there and we don't want to catch it. We wash our hands, we keep our distance from people and the things that are infected. Like I said at the, at the beginning, um, and, and again, some of you know, I've had the chance to be involved with some of this international work in relief and development. And um, when I was thinking about this outside-in view of sin, um, the view of the Pharisees had of the human condition, I was reminded of, of an education tool that often gets used in, in hygiene promotion in these international contexts. It's called the, the F diagram, and you can see a version of it up here on the screen. So it's called the F diagram for all the, all the things with that start with F that are in it. So feces and fingers and flies and fields and fluids and food. Um, and it's this whole, this diagram is just meant to illustrate um, the pathways of, of fecal oral disease transmission and then also the barriers that can, can stop the transmission. So it's with this, we're trying to remind folks how we prevent nasty diseases like typhoid and cholera and polio and hepatitis and, and other infections. And these arrows on the diagram, they show the potential pathways for disease to be transmitted, right? So, you know, from the feces of an infected person, you know, uh, to flies, and then the flies maybe land on our food, and then the food goes into the new host. Or, you know, feces to fingers to the new host, right? Just a way to illustrate those pathways. And then the vertical blue lines are meant to illustrate barriers, like where can we break the pathway? Where can we stop the disease from transmitting, right? So there's, you know, the toilet barrier, you know, proper sanitation facilities, there's the safe water barrier, and then there's hygiene and hand washing, right? Making sure that what we're ingesting is, is clean. And the, the thing is, if we view sin as an external problem, like the Pharisees did, as sort of a communicable disease, then our solution is going to look something like this. It's going to have external solutions, We're going to look for these external, outside-in methods of protection. We're going to try to quarantine, you know, the sinful people or the sinful things, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. We're going to push them all over there away from us like we keep waste in a latrine or a septic tank. And, you know, we better make sure that the things that we're putting into us, the things that we're consuming, the music, the TV shows, the books, that they're all clean, like safe water. Because we don't want us, we don't want our kids to get infected. And if we do slip up and encounter some of that dirty stuff, well, we better make sure that we we clean up good afterwards, right? We better say enough prayers, do enough good deeds to balance things out. We better wash our hands before this stuff takes root. And that's really how the Pharisees viewed the problem. And if we're honest, it's how many of us today view the problem. You know, whether we're inside or outside the church, whether we you know, trust Jesus or we don't. Like, we view this, this idea as, like, there's bad things out there, but, like, I'm all good. The problem isn't me. 
It's not us. It's not my child. It's not my family. It's those people out there. It's those circumstances. It's our government. It's our school system. It's capitalism. It's socialism. The devil made me do it. It's our systematic cultural and societal issues. The problem is out there. And I'm not denying this morning that there are external problems. The world is broken. I acknowledge that. And Jesus does too. But the truth is that the problem doesn't start out there like a transmissible disease to be caught. It starts in here. And we're already infected. It's not a popular view. It's uncomfortable. But make make no mistake, it is the truth that Scripture teaches. It's the truth that Jesus teaches. And after his encounter with the Pharisees in, uh, in the first part of our passage this morning, he then turns to the larger crowds and teaches this general principle. Mark records it in, uh, in brief in verses 14 and 15. And then he uh, makes a more explicit, Jesus makes a more explicit uh, explanation of it to his disciples in verses 18 and following. And we read, uh, we read this. And he said to them, then also are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus is building off of this theme that the Pharisees had already introduced in their original objection. Um, and, he, and he kind of pivots and makes this more general point that we've already kind of touched on. It's not the unclean hands. It's not the unclean food that defiles us. No, but like he uses kind of graphic terms. Like that goes into the stomach and then out into the toilet. It has no interaction with the heart, which was understood to be the seat of the human's will, emotions, and actions. It's the core of our being. We still use the term that way. It's not what goes in and then goes out that's the problem. It's what's already in there. The prophet Jeremiah describes the heart as deceitful above all things and desperately sick. James writes in his epistle that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and they are enticed. Sin isn't just out there, it's in here. There's this story that's been told about uh, the philosopher and author uh, G.K. Chesterton. I'm not not 100% sure if it's true or not, couldn't sort that out. I called the people down at the internet, they didn't know either. Um, But it's a powerful story regardless. Um, The story goes that the Times in London, this British daily newspaper that's been in publication since like the late 18th century, um, they once in the early 1900s posed a question uh, to several prominent authors. And the question was this, what's wrong with the world? It's an interesting question because it presupposes that there is something wrong with the world, which I think if you know anybody today, if they're being honest, we know that there is stuff wrong, right? But they're looking for, okay, what's, what's the thoughts here? What's, what's wrong with the world? And the story is that G.K. Chesterton responded to the question with a very brief letter. And this is what it said. Dear sirs, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
It's witty. It's poetic. It's a tad unnerving, but it's really in line with Scripture. And it's also in line with Tim Keller, who says this. What's really wrong with the world? Why can the world be such a miserable place? Why is there so much strife between nations, races, tribes, and classes? Why do relationships tend to fray and fall apart? Jesus is saying, we are what's wrong. It's what comes out from the inside. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. Our problem is not outside in, it's inside out. The problem is internal. And yet all of our standard techniques for solving the problem, they're external. They're trying to solve this inside out problem from the outside in. We think that being good will fix us, or that's what we, were, we think we were taught, right? Read your Bible, pray, stay away from booze, cigarettes, and premarital sex, and you'll be good. But ask a generation of purity culture Christians if that left them feeling secure and valuable and loved by God, and I don't know that they would have many positive things to say. And if we think that social and political reform is our ticket out of this mess, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's much needed, and it always has been, and it will continue to be needed, but history shows us that it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you are on, humans are capable of some nasty things. A kingdom devoid of the true king is destined to fall. Earthly achievements, conformity to cultural norms, and our family's expectations, a successful Christian ministry, these things are all things that we try to use to cleanse ourselves, to make us feel worth something, to try to erase this deep sense that something is fundamentally wrong, but they don't get to the heart of the problem, which is a problem with our heart. I warned you at the beginning that this was going to be tough. They're not easy truths. Especially if you're here and you don't know what to make of all this Bible stuff and Jesus and whatnot. But I also promised you that there would be some good news. And the good news is that, that Mark doesn't finish his gospel here in chapter 7. There's a lot more to come. And even right in this passage, there is a glimmer of hope. It's a small phrase in the second half of verse 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. I know, it doesn't seem like much at first, right? <laughs> Great, you can have that one for free. But, but stick with me. We know from studying the book of Mark that he doesn't often provide much commentary or explanation. And so when he does insert his own interpretation into the passage, we would do well to pay attention. In this brief sentence, Mark points out a revolutionary implication of Christ's teaching for first century Jews. The uncleanliness of certain foods wasn't a part of oral tradition, like this washing of hands thing that we talked about. This uncleanliness of certain foods, it was in the Torah. It was right there in the written law. And yet in this teaching, Jesus, with authority, is offering a paradigm shift. Keller explains it this way. Mark 7, verse 19, doesn't read, Jesus said all foods were clean. If it did, then maybe the meaning would be, you know, Jesus says you don't need to worry so much about these foods. Everything's all right. Go ahead and eat them. But that's not what happened. Verse 19 reads, Jesus declared. He pronounced. Greek experts and scholars agree. Jesus is saying, as of now, I make these foods clean. 
I called the world into being. I called the storm to a halt. I called a girl back from death. And now I call all foods clean. In order to understand the magnitude of this, you have to remember that Jesus has an incredibly high regard for the word of God. He considers it binding, even on himself. He says that not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the word of God until it is all fulfilled. So what he is saying here is that the cleanliness laws have been fulfilled. Their purpose, to get you to move towards spiritual purification, has been carried out. What an incredible thing to say. So why is this good news for us? We didn't have to obey these. We're, we, we weren't, not to my knowledge, obeying these, these food laws, right? Well, the thing is, it's the same Jesus who calmed the storm, raised this little girl, and declared all foods clean that has made a way for our hearts to be purified, to be cleansed from the inside out. He has made a way for us to be declared righteous, to be good and pure, completely fit for his presence. The cleanliness laws of the Old Testament were not the only thing that Jesus fulfilled and declared to be finished in his lifetime. Remember our study last year in Hebrews? We learned that the Old Testament sacrificial system had its time and place, but ultimately it was a shadow of what Jesus was going to bring. It was temporary and external. But Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. He offered us a way out of all of this difficulty with our heart once and for all. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He declared the foods clean, and he can declare you clean. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a, a sermon on Spotify about this passage in Mark 7, and it was, it was a pastor from Tennessee, and he used an illustration that stuck with me for a couple weeks. Have you ever considered that in most cases that you're, uh, you're trying to clean something, you have to get something else dirty in order to make that thing clean? Like, think about it. Dishcloths, toilet paper, paper towel, Q-tips, those OxyPad face wipes that we used when we were teenagers. Right? They all take on the filth of whatever they're trying to clean, right? A couple weeks ago, I was <clears throat> working up north in Alberta, and uh, I had packed my lunch, and I had taken some chili along in what I thought was a sealed container. Um, I put it in my lunch pail to enjoy later that day, um, but unfortunately, at lunch, I discovered that somehow this container had, had spilled, and the chili had leaked out everywhere and made a huge mess. So, of course, when I got back to my room later that evening, I had to get my lunch pail clean for the next day. Well, in order to do that, I had to take this pristine white washcloth and just go for it. And I'm sure you can picture what that washcloth looked like when I was done. That's a pretty good image of what Jesus has endured on our behalf to make us clean. He had to get in there, allow himself to be soiled, to take on our filth, 
to be made unclean so that our hearts could be considered pure, righteous, and fit for the presence of God. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we close this morning, we're going to transition into sharing communion together, into a time of reflection and confession and thankfulness and celebration. Together, let's reflect on this difficult truth that our hearts are far more wicked than we had ever dared believe. No, at at first, these verses that we look at in Mark 7, they don't seem to bring a ton of good news if we put ourselves into them. It's a bit uncomfortable. We want to root on Jesus for calling out the Pharisees' hypocrisy, but if we're honest with ourselves, we know that our hearts are full of it too. Together, let's confess that we're part of the problem. Instead of searching for something out there to blame for our brokenness, let's acknowledge the brokenness is in here and acknowledge that we can't fix this ourselves. But in, th- in thankfulness, let's go to God and, and thank him that he has not left us alone. We are in this together. Darcy said at the end of his message last week, we're all in the same boat. There's no, there's no need to hide here. It's okay to not be okay. Like none of us are okay. As we come to communion, let's leave those masks behind. This is not ancient Greek theater. You don't need them on. You don't have to pretend. Together, let's celebrate that it, it's not only bad news this morning. Not by a long shot. The good news is that we are also more loved and cherished and valued and accepted than we ever have dared to hope. That Jesus saw us in our filth and he came for us. It cost him dearly, but he came anyways. Let's hear these words uh, from Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this morning, if you, uh, if you know and trust Jesus as your redeemer, then I invite you to come to the cleanser of your soul. I invite you to join with me as we take these communion elements. Let's pray. Father, we come before you so broken. God, I come before you so broken. Man, it's tough to get up here and talk about hypocrisy when you feel some days like you're the king of them. And Lord, I, yeah, I know these are tough truths and they're not popular ones and we don't like to be told that we're the problem. It's so opposite to what we hear our culture saying and what even some of our brothers and sisters in the faith want to tell us. But we know like, these truths are inescapable. We know that, yeah, you created us in the image of God, but we're tainted, we're broken. And yet, God, we are so, so thankful that you have not considered us lost causes. You have not written us off. We are not so far gone that we cannot be rescued by your grace. And so, Lord, we just come before you together 
and celebrate that and thank you for that and remember that. As difficult as these things are, Lord, I pray that there would be an encouragement for us that we would figure out how to walk understanding our position before you, both before you rescued us and, and now that you have. Lord, we thank you so much that you have declared us righteous. That we don't have to stay in that, that sin and that brokenness any longer, that we can be rescued and cleaned and our heart can be right before you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.